Thank you, Randy. Appreciate it. In Matthew chapter 4, we see a picture of Jesus calling his first disciples, those who would follow him. And what we're looking at over the next five weeks is a picture of God's intent that his people would be fishers of men, that we would be disciple-making witnesses of Christ. Um, the whole idea behind this is the emphasis of who's your one. That is, could you imagine if every Christian was actually engaging and trying to share Jesus with somebody intentionally? What that would do, what that would mean in the life of the church, what it would mean in the life of the kingdom of God if every Christian was busy trying to share Jesus with someone that they knew wasn't saved well, we see that picture from early on. Just so you know, that is not something new. That is something that has been taking place from the time Jesus has been calling disciples to himself. And what I want to look at this morning as we consider who's your one, who's the one person you're going to invest in, the one person you're going to try to share Jesus with over the course of this year, we need to understand that's why God saved us and that's why we follow him is uh, to share the gospel and to be fishers of men. What's interesting is that the first followers of Jesus didn't call themselves Christians. The first followers of Jesus didn't get called Christians until the middle of Acts, after Jesus has already ascended into heaven. And in fact, in the Bible, the word Christian is only used three times. But the main phrase or the main word used to describe Jesus' followers was actually the term disciple. It's used 281 times. So you consider that the main thrust God wanted to get across is that we are disciples or learners of Jesus. That's what the word disciple means. It means to be a learner of Jesus. And so what we want to look at is disciple is probably a far more compelling description of what it means to follow Jesus. But what we need to be aware of is that the concept of being a disciple exposes the fact that many people who claim to be Christians actually aren't disciples. Because when we look at what a disciple actually is, I wonder how many of us actually stack up to that description. I think it's very important for today considering that over half of America believes they're Christians. But when we look at the biblical example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I believe we fall well short of that number. So in Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus in his early public ministry. We're told that he's walking along the Sea of Galilee and he encounters two guys. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay, so let's give some historical background to what we're talking about this morning. First of all, the, the idea of being a disciple of someone is not very familiar to us. It's not something that we engage in a great deal of the time. But back in those days, in the days of rabbis, it was a very important thing to be a disciple. We're told in history that all Hebrew boys went to Torah school starting at age five. Now, by the age of 10, all young boys knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the best students went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament. If you were really advanced, you got to study the whole Old Testament. The rest who didn't excel in the Torah, they would return home to work in their family's businesses. Now, we're told at about the age of 17, if you wanted to go on and, be, and make a career out of being uh, religious or in religious studies, your next step was you had to find a rabbi to attach yourself to, to learn from. 
And what you would do is you would seek out someone who you admired and you would apply to be one of their disciples. Now the rabbis would choose. Out of those who desired to follow them, they would choose the ones that they would allow to follow them. Can you guess which boys, young men, the rabbis would choose to have follow them? Well, I, I tell you, it, it ain't going to be me. All right. Uh, they would get to choose, and when they chose, they would always choose the, the brightest, the most gifted, the most talented. Those are the ones, if you're a, if you're a rabbi, you, you don't want to have a lazy group of disciples following you around. You don't want a train wreck behind you, right? You want the gifted, the brightest, the wisest, the best. Well, another reason the rabbis would be so picky when they would choose a disciple is they, they were choosing someone whom they believed could become just like them. Someone who would not only know what they know, but would do what they do. So you want to pick the ones who you think are most like you. And so for several years, these young disciples would follow their rabbis, imitating them in every way. And the goal of a disciple was to be like the rabbi. You say, well, that sounds great. Except the fact that God operates differently. He uses different standards. And that's what I want to look at this morning. What it looks like to be one of Jesus' disciples and how does Jesus pick his disciples. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. See, the whole goal of what God is doing in the world is he is establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And part of that establishing his kingdom is gathering together followers who are going to pursue him, who are going to follow after him, who are going to imitate him. And when he does that, we see a reflection of God's character and his plan. Because what I want you to get first of all is that Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. And we see it in Peter and Andrew. Are they great pillars of society? Are they monumental intellectuals? Do they have a massive amount of influence? They're fishermen. And in fact, in chapter 4, the first disciples Jesus calls are not just these two fishermen, but two more right after them. As rabbis and other rabbis are picking the most gifted and the most talented, Jesus doesn't choose the best. Sorry, Peter and Andrew and... James and John, he chooses the willing. He doesn't pick the best of the best and thank the Lord for that. Because if he did, we wouldn't be on the list most likely. John MacArthur says this, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. That's who God chose. And why would God choose the lessers? 
Why, why wouldn't God choose the best and the brightest? Well, because if he chose all the best and brightest, the ones who were wise according to this world, then guess who they're going to boast in? Themselves. I'm, God, aren't you so lucky you have me? God, you're so lucky that I chose you. No. The, the glory would come not in who they were, but in the God who was going to use them and work through them despite the fact that they weren't the best and brightest, despite the fact that they were fishermen. So people with a lot of talent and ability would only get in the way because they would never learn to lean on the power of God. If we think we got it conquered, we don't think we need God. By the way, I'm talking to me in front, you know, above everyone. We, when we think we got it all figured out, we stop turning to God and we start depending on ourselves. Well, guess what? God chooses not the wisest of the world, right? not the most talented. He chooses what the world considers weak and foolish so that he can receive the glory. So that he would be the one who they say, wow, God can use those people? And that's who we are in the room. As Christians in the room, we are testimonies of the fact that God can use them. Are you serious? Have you seen their backgrounds? Because he chooses the willing, not the best. And God wants to use us. He wants to use us in, his fa in our families, in our workplaces. And we don't need to sit around continuing to make excuses as to why we can't do things for God. Or why we can't be used of God in mighty ways. Notice he uses fishermen for his glory and his work. Number two, I want you to notice from our text today that he chose us, not we chose him. You got me? Notice that Jesus initiates the calling of his disciples. He says, follow me. Now remember... Back in this day, uh, the normal way this all went down is that if you were among the best of your class, you applied to a rabbi, and if he liked what he saw, he chose you back. Now his selection gave them a great deal of confidence. If they were struggling, they could say, ah, my rabbi believes in me. He chose me. But Jesus starts the, pro uh, the process even further back. Because in their day, you would go and sit at the feet of the rabbi, ask to follow him, and then he would choose you if he thought you were worthy. But guess where Jesus starts? He doesn't start with those who are coming to his feet and asking to follow him. He goes and finds them where they're at and calls them. So it wasn't as if they were even looking for him. Peter and, Peter and Andrew weren't sitting around going, where's Jesus at? We need to find him so we can find out if we can follow him. No, they're minding their business, doing their regular duties, and guess what? Jesus shows up and says, you're going to follow me. He chose us, not us choosing him. And that helps in the midst of all the struggles we face, in marriage, in jobs, in parenting. If you are Jesus' disciples, I need you to think about this. If you're Jesus' disciples, he chose you. Not because you were great but because of his glory and his grace. John chapter 15, verse 16. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Jesus wants us to remember the fact that 
we weren't the lovely and the lovable. We were the ones who were the outcasts and the strangers, and he's the one who showed up and said, you're going to follow me now. He chose us, not we, him. And number three, our primary calling is to be with him. Our primary calling is to be with Jesus. He says, follow me. Not just some set of doctrines, not just some activities. Jesus says, follow me. And notice he didn't tell them where they were going or what their assignment was going to be. He shows up to Peter and, and Andrew and says, uh, follow me. Okay. Not, not, now follow me. Here's where we're going to go. Here's what we're going to do. No, he just says, follow me. And they do. And his primary call is not to do something. It is to become like him. And to become like him, you have to know him. To know him, you have to know his word. And so Jesus calls his followers to follow him him, be imitators of him, not just do religious stuff. And it's very, very important. So God's word should be central to us. It should dominate us. Because in order to know how to follow Jesus, in order to know how to look like him, we have to know who he is and what his word says about him. So our primary calling isn't to religious activity. Our primary calling is a relationship with Christ where we are learning from him and following him and being with him. And we cannot do that effectively apart from God's word. Number four, to follow him, we have to leave all. Notice the response of these first disciples. Verse 19, he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. That doesn't sound easy. And maybe you say, well, that was just, they were just a, a unique pair, just a unique a pair of brothers who would do that. Verse 21, going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So it wasn't just Peter and Andrew, James and John did the same thing. When Jesus showed up and said, follow me, they left everything to go follow him. That's not easy to do. And notice the two things they were called to leave behind that we see in verse 22. We're told in verse 22, they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. Number one, they left the boat, which was their source of money. It was their business. It's how they took care of themselves. They left their career at the moment and their financial stability to go follow Jesus. Now, just so you know, I'm not saying that in order to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to quit your job, right? Jobs are good. But if God told you to quit your job, maybe you should, right? That we're willing to give up everything and leave it all behind in order to follow Jesus. And that includes our careers. But he also left his father in the boat. Poor, poor guy. Poor Zebedee. Hey, where are you going, guys? <laughs> See, they were willing to leave behind the most significant human relationships they had. No other human relationship was as valuable to them as Jesus. And we see this in other places in the Gospels too. Jesus says, unless we're willing to leave father and mother and brother and sister and follow him, right? He's, saying, he's not saying that you've got to leave your family and abandon everybody. What he's saying is 
the relationship to Christ should be the primary relationship you have, the greatest above all other relationships you hold, that you're willing to give them up because you love Jesus more. Not that he's saying leave your families. He's just saying love me more than them. Love following Jesus more than pleasing our families. Because sometimes when we follow Jesus and we walk after him and imitate him, the people who we think love us the most will actually turn. It can be very difficult to trust and follow after Christ, but they were willing to do that. Jesus took precedent over their boat, over their father, and that's something that we need to realize is that God, while he may not be calling us to change careers or, or, or move away, he, he certainly calls us to love him more than anything else this life can offer. And you'll have moments in your life where you have to decide which one matters to you more, Jesus or the stuff of the world. And that can be a really hard challenge sometimes, let's be honest. But he calls us, when Jesus calls us to be his followers, he calls us to leave all to follow him. Number five, he commands us to spiritually reproduce. Jesus didn't save you, call you to follow him just to go around doing activity until he comes back. He calls us as followers of his to spiritually reproduce. That we wouldn't just exist, live our own lives and go off into heaven, but in fact we would seek to spiritually reproduce in others. Following Jesus means you subject everything in your life to his lordship. That's an essential part of being a disciple. And it's not something that only a few of us do, it's something that each of us is called to do. This is not just, well, do this if you're a super Christian. Every believer in Jesus, every follower of his is commanded by Christ to spiritually reproduce in another person, disciple someone else, teach someone else how to walk after Jesus. There is no such thing as a non-reproducing Christian. If we're not reproducing, if we're not teaching others how to walk after Jesus, we really have to ask ourselves, are we walking after Jesus? Because the Bible says this is part of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. But we need to consider the fact that Jesus says that he will make us fishers of men. See, this is important. Charles Spurgeon said this, follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. When Christ calls us by his grace, we ought not only remember what we are, but we ought also to think of what he can make us. It is, follow me and I will make you. We should repent of what we have been, but rejoice in what we may be. It is not, follow me because of what you are already. It's not, follow me because you may make something of yourselves, but follow me because of what I will make you. It did not seem a likely thing that humble fishermen would develop into apostles, that men so handy with the net would be as much at home in preaching sermons and in instructing converts. One would have said, how can these things be? You cannot make founders of churches out of peasants of Galilee. And that's exactly what Christ did. And when we're brought low in the sight of God by a sense of our own unworthiness, we may feel encouraged to follow Jesus because of what he can make us. See, he's not calling us for who we are. He's calling us for who he's going to make us to be. 
And if he can use fishermen to change the entire course of history and the landscape of what it meant to be a follower of God, then he can certainly use us today for his glory. The same power at work in them is the same power at work in us today. It's not about who we are. It's about who he's making us to be. And you may say today, I'm not a good fisher of men. Right? You may say, I really struggle sharing the gospel with other people. I really struggle spiritually reproducing and showing someone else how to walk after Jesus. Guess what? He's not done with you. And don't sit around saying, well, that's who I was. Sit around and say, well, that's what God's making me. I'm going to be this and follow after him and trust that he can use you to do this. You can share Jesus with people, and God will save people as a result. Because of who he's making you to be. He will make you fishers of men. But notice the most important thing is that we are called to spiritually reproduce. How do you prove you're a disciple of Jesus? By bearing fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, we have reason to question whether we're disciples at all. John 15, 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Jesus tells his disciples how to bear fruit in the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The idea of going and baptizing and teaching, there are, they're all participles that derive their force from one controlling verb. It's called make disciples, which means everything we do grows out of the call to make disciples of others. See, everything we have, everything God has given us, everything we do revolves around making disciples of others, that we would show other people how to walk after Jesus. The money you have right now is not simply to care for your daily needs. The money God has given you right now is to be used to glorify him and make disciples of other people. Every dollar you have is meant to be used for the kingdom of God, not hoarded for ourselves, but used so that we might show somebody else how to live and walk after Jesus in repentance and faith. Every job God gives us. If you have a job right now that is not an accident, it's not a job simply for you to have something to do during the day. Your job has been given to you by God for the express purpose that you would use it to glorify God and to teach others how to walk after Jesus. If you're retired, all the things you do, every activity you enjoy, all the things you invest yourself into, they are gifts of God for your joy, but they're not meant just for you. You're meant to use your hobbies, use your influence, use the people you know so that you might be able to pour into them and to speak to them about how they can walk after Christ and glorify his Father who is in heaven. Everything is wrapped up. That's why you can't say, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to be making disciples then you're missing the whole point of why you're saved. You're missing the whole point of why God gives you every day of life. It's to help someone else look more like Jesus. So who's that person? Who's that person for you? 
if, if God's given you your money and your time and your job and your family and your influences, if God's given you that for his glory and so that you might help people be disciples of Jesus, who are you investing in? Who's that one person that you're saying, okay, I'm going to leverage everything God has given me so that they might hear about Jesus and walk after him? Because if we're not doing that, we're wasting our time. Making disciples was the focus of everything Jesus called us to do. And the good news is, God can save people however he wants, but he decides he's going to use the foolish according to the world, the not so wise according to the world, the weak according to the world. God's going to use us to show other people his power. He's going to use us to take the gospel to the world, to take the gospel to people who don't know Jesus, and to call them to repent and trust in him and walk after him. God's going to use us. And until the church understands that's our calling, then we will waste our time. We'll spend our resources in ways we shouldn't. We'll, we'll simply get tied up in member care and taking care of ourselves, that we forget that there are people out next to us every single day standing in line at the grocery store, at the, at the tire change place, uh, at the gym, that don't know Jesus, are going to die and go to hell. And we don't say, a single thing because we've forgotten that we exist to make disciples. And God can use you and me to do that. If he can use fishermen, he can use us. Can you imagine what it would look like if every person sitting here this morning did that? Maybe you don't know who that one person is. Maybe you say, I don't know who my one person is. I don't know who I would seek to share Jesus with. Guess what you need to do? What do you think you would need to do if you don't know who the one person is you're supposed to invest in and try to point to Jesus? There you go. You should probably pray, God, show me who that one person is who needs to know who Christ is and give me the opportunity to go and share with them who he is. And why they should follow him. Maybe we should pray, God, give us one person who we can tell about Jesus. And if every person in the room did that, we might not sit around going, why aren't people getting saved? Instead, we'd be saying, man, did you hear about Miss Linda who went out and started talking to neighbors yesterday? who couldn't control herself, showed up on church work day, couldn't control herself and had to go talk to neighbors and tell them about how much she loved them and how much she loves Jesus. We might be celebrating that more, wouldn't we? You know what I mean? If you here this morning have had chances this past week to tell somebody about Christ and to see how God's worked, that you might show up on Sunday morning going, you cannot believe who God allowed me to talk to this week and how I got to share with them. They didn't trust Jesus yet, but I got to share with them who Christ is, that they might know him and that one day God might save them. You can do it. Eddie, you have a great opportunity at the, at the gym. You know a lot of people there, and I know you've been talking to them. Don't give up. Don't stop. Keep praying, God, show me one guy here who I can share Jesus with. Pray God will save him, and then tell him about him, and keep doing it. Don't get discouraged. All you sweet old ladies 
who know all your neighbors. You all know your neighbors. You spy on them, right? <laughs> just, just stay off, stay off Sheila, uh, Barb Street. Don't go down their street. They know everybody there. And you guys know your neighbors so well that you might actually have a chance to tell them about Jesus. And they might listen to you because they know you. See, you don't live around the people you live around for accident. God puts you on that street to leverage every bit of resources you have that you might tell them about Jesus. Is that not the greatest thing in the world? Frank, you and Lisa are both able to interact with new families all the time. God brings families to y'all. You don't even have to look for them. They look for you sometimes. And you have all the influence to be able to not only show them a great place to live or to help them in selling their home, you have the chance to be able to say, I know Christ, and I know he's better than any home you'll ever buy. And you have the chance to show them that he makes you supremely joyful, not these things. You're able to leverage those influences that I'll never have. I'll never get to see some of those people. What a gift to have God just bringing unsaved people to your doorstep all the time. What a gift of God. And that helps you get through all the struggles of, oh, I hate doing all these classes, and I hate doing all this study, and I hate taking all these tests. But guess what? I love Jesus, and I'm going to use every bit of influence to point people to him. Frank, you did that for us. When we bought our house, you shared with us. You, you made sure that we understood that this was a gift of God. This was something he was giving us. I appreciate doing that. And I hope you continue to do that for other people who don't know him. What a great opportunity. Don, you'll talk to everybody in the world. Sometimes too much. You love to talk to people. Don't say amen. Don't say amen, Lynn. But Don, you love people and you love talking to them. You have such a wonderful, great heart. And God has put people around you who you have the opportunity to share Jesus with. And I know you do it. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Keep on sharing Christ. Keep on pointing them to Jesus because every single dollar and moment God has given you is to be used for his glory in sharing Jesus with people that they might walk after him. You see what I'm talking about? I don't mean just to pick on certain ones. That's just the... Everybody in the room has examples of that. Everybody has opportunities like that. But let's stop sitting around going, why aren't they showing up? Why aren't people getting saved? Let's go talk to them. Let's go find them and share with them that Christ is the king and he will rescue them and use them for his glory just like he's using us. And following him is far better than any boat, any dad, any job, any family. Jesus is supreme to all of them and we'll never sit back and go, man, I wish I hadn't done that for Jesus. No, we'll sit every day and say, I counted a blessing. I got to do anything for Christ at all. And that he used my feeble efforts to see people one to Jesus. Oh, he's called you to make disciples, not to sit here. He didn't call you to exist. He called you to go make disciples and show them how to walk after Jesus. If you don't know how to do that well, you need to come see me. You need to come to my office. I'll sit down with you and say, this is how I share Jesus with people. Just so you know, coming up very shortly, I'm going to teach a class on exactly how to do that for the entire church. How to share Jesus in the most simple way I can think of. And I want you to be comfortable doing that because that's why you exist as a Christian. But he commands us to spiritually reproduce. So here's the question, who's our one? Who's the one person we're gonna invest in? Who's the one neighbor? Who's the one coworker? Who's the one family member? Who's the one person we go hang out at the gym with? Who's that one person that we're gonna go tell about Christ? And we're praying that God would open their eyes to see the truth, that God would rescue them. Is there anything better than to be able to come back testifying God is working in the hearts of this person because of his glory. Everyone can do it.
And I love the fact that this church is so loving and gracious to people. Use that. Don't just use it for here. Spread it to everyone you can. Oh, the good news that he has called us to be fishers of men for his glory. What a privilege. Let's think who is our one that we can. And maybe this morning, you're not asking who's your one. Maybe you're the one. Maybe you're the one that needs to trust in Jesus. Maybe you're the one who you've heard the good news of Christ that he came, died in our place, rose from the dead. He paid for our sin. And he rescues us, calls upon us to turn away from sin and to trust in him alone by his sacrifice on the cross in our place. Maybe you need to trust in Jesus today. You can't do this if you're not a Christian. You must be born again. And maybe this morning you need to do that. Please do not leave here until you know for sure you're a Christian, until you know for sure that you are a disciple of Jesus who has been forgiven through his blood in your place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I love you, and God, I am supremely grateful that you remind us of the fact that you not only save us by your grace, but God, you remind us that you chose us, not us, you. And oh, how grateful we are to know that, to know that you are the one who has saved us, not because we were great, not because we were mighty, not because we were the wisest and the strongest. You chose us to display your glory, that you are a God who can work through the frailties and and weaknesses of people like us. But Father, I pray that we would not just be existing as Christians, but we would be leveraging every single day, moment, dollar, time, everything, God, for your glory, for your kingdom's sake, that God, we would be busy sharing Jesus with others. We'd be busy looking for people and praying for them that, God, you would draw them to yourself. God, we know you'll save people if we'll pray and share Jesus with them. We know you'll do it. It may take a thousand times, but God, give us a passion, a burning desire that we're not satisfied as a church. We're not satisfied as Christians unless people are getting saved until lives are being changed and hearts are being changed for your glory. God, do it. Not so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look what we did, but we could glorify your name and say, look what you've done, God. In this place this morning, God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, if anyone here who's trying to earn their way to heaven, anyone who thinks they're a Christian because their dad was a Christian or their grandpa was a Christian or because they grew up in the South, they're a Christian, God, that you would break all of that away, you would break it all down and instead show them that God, it's not about our heritage, it's about Jesus. And we need him. And so, Father, today, draw them to yourself. Show them that they are sinners in need of forgiveness and show them that Jesus is the one who forgives their sin and gladly welcomes them in repentance. So, Father, I pray that you'll save people today, that they'd have the courage to say, I need to know Christ. And, God, for Christians in the room, I pray you'll help us to see that we're not just on cruise control waiting for heaven to come. There is no retirement plan. But God, you have created us, you have saved us to make disciples, to show other people how to walk after you, to point people to their need to be forgiven of their sin, to be washed clean in the blood of Jesus. Oh, Father, I pray you'll help us to see that's why we exist as a church. May everything we do be about that purpose. Every Bible study, every men's group, every ladies' group, every time spent together, every church workday, God, show us that every single bit of it is to be used 
to tell others about Jesus, that you would save them. So, Father, today I pray you'll do work in our hearts and in our community so that we might praise your name forever as you rescue people for your glory. Father, do it for your own praise. Lord, as we respond to you this morning, help us to do so with humble hearts because you are the king and we love you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.